that's on everyone. Um, okay, first let me get through with the thank yous, because if I don't do this, I always forget, and then I'm mad at myself forever. So I would like to thank Rex and David, our chair and co-chair of this wonderful roundup. It's a lot of work. And all of the committee members, thank you so much for all that you do. Um, I, I appreciate it, and I'm sure everyone else is here, too. And my lovely hostess, Penny, who's terrified to be sitting up here. Send her some love. <laughs> and I have a lovely gift I have in my room. They called me up and asked me what I wanted, and that's what they gave me. It was really cool. What a wonderful idea. That was just great. So, okay, and let's see what else. Oh, I want to thank Roger and the takers. I wouldn't be here without tapes. Um, I lived on them for years. So, okay. I'm ready now. Hi, my name's Cookie, and I'm an alcoholic. It's <laughs> in the grace of God, a self-set program of recovery from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I have not found it necessary to take a drink since October 25th, 1983. I don't know if that impresses you, but it impresses the heck out of me. <laughs> Okay, um, I'm kidding here, really I am. Uh, okay, so, um, you know, it was really funny one time I was going to do one of my first talks and I, I called my sponsor and I said, oh, I really want to carry the message and I want to do a good job and I want to tell them that God is and, and I want them to know that they never have to drink again and, and I, you know, it's really, I, I really want to do a good job. And she said, well, Cookie, um, you were at that roundup last year. Do you remember the speakers? And I said, well, I, uh, um, uh, um, was one of them a woman? <laughs> she said to me, well, that's about how many people are going to remember you, so don't worry about it. <laughs> so, uh, then the other thing I always worry about, because I've gained a bunch of weight, so, so I'm standing up here and I'm thinking, oh, what am I going to wear? I, you know, I just haven't got anything to wear right now. And then I realized that most of you only see me from above here up. <laughs> Okay, uh, I was born a rich white child, and uh, <laughs> and from that, and I love to talk about this part of my story because it's it's very different from a lot of speakers, and because that's different does not make me different. It's just that my lifestyle was different. I was brought up in a family who loved and cared for me. I was told I could accomplish anything I ever wanted to accomplish. Um, I have an older brother and a younger brother, and I was the middle kid. I was a, a super achiever. I wanted to be the good girl. I wanted to grow up to be just like my mom. My mom's a lady, and I wanted to be a lady just like my mom. And so all of those things, you don't hear about a lot of uh, people telling their stories in AA. But the one thing I do know today is that alcoholism is an equal opportunity destroyer. And it doesn't really care where you came from or how much money you have or don't have or if you're black or white or Catholic or... Jewish or Buddhist or if you have the illness of alcoholism like I have the illness of alcoholism you get to die the same disease or you get to recover together with us so we're here tonight and this is our night and I'm so glad you were here it makes my day so okay um, I was started out and I remember one time I was talking to my girlfriend and we, had just, we were both about well, I don't know about two years sober and we, we went back and we decided we'd talk about or we think about when was the first time it's ever, that ever that alcohol affected you? You know, I mean, not necessarily when you drank, but when did alcohol affect you? You know, and I had to think about it for a while, and, you know, I was thinking about it, and I'm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
and then all of a sudden I remembered. I remembered when I was young, my parents, uh, my parents just had these wonderful parties, and they were like balls, and, uh, and people would come dressed up, and that's when people actually used to all get dressed up to go to a party. And, uh, and so I, I, they would come dressed up, and they would be beautiful, and the men would come in tuxedos, and the women would come in long dresses, and they would just all look so sophisticated, and I had to go around and curtsy and meet every one of them. And, and I passed hors d'oeuvres and curtsies and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, I just watched all of it. And it going on for, you know, weeks beforehand to make the house look right. And it was just all that kind of exciting atmosphere around the house. And, um, <laughs> and so I was there that night. And I saw everybody coming, start to come in. And my mom had this gorgeous dress. And I had my little goofy outfit on. And <laughs> I've never been much of a girly girl. So I kind of think some of those are like goofy outfits because my mother likes to dress me up like a real girly girl and I usually made a big mess out of it in no time. But, okay, so this lady came in and she was, you know how some people are just more than other people? They're just more, you know? And she came in and she was more. She walked in the door and she had on this blue gown that started up here and it was blue sequins and it started light blue and it was only on one shoulder. And, and it's up here and went down and down and down and down and it was a form-fitting outfit and she had a form to fit and, and went down and down and down and down and it cooled around the bottom of her feet in this blue pool and she was just gorgeous you know when she had this great big huge hairdo I still suffer from that and <laughs> higher the hair the closer you are to God <laughs> and uh, so <laughs> so I uh and I watched her, you know, and she, and she had these little blue shoes and a little blue bag that hung off of her thing. And she had this gorgeous husband. He was in a tuxedo. He was so handsome. I have always been a fool for men in tuxedos. I have got to quit marrying them. Glad they're not here. I'm single again. <laughs> So yeah, I couldn't, and everybody watched them. And she had, she had this big long cigarette holder, and on the end of the cigarette, everybody smoked back then. And on the end of the cigarette holder, she had little blue rhinestones. They matched her dress. I was so impressed. You know, and the butler came by and asked her if she'd like to have anything to drink, and she said, I'll have a martini. I'll have a martini. I've been practicing it for years. I'm not much of a girly girl. Okay, so the butler came back and he was a V-shaped martini glass. He got her one with little blue bulbs on the bottom. Oh, my. How impressive. And so she stood there drinking her drink with her cigarette. And she'd throw her head back and go, ha, 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 ha. And all the men were around her. And I wanted what she had. <laughs> Attention. <laughs> That's why I love it. I live in a suburb called Edina, and Edina stands for every day I need attention. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, she was just gorgeous, and she had a martini, and, and, and you know, everybody was milling around, and her husband was talking to people, and my mother just missed me for the evening. I had to go say goodnight to everybody. And that's so why I went around, said goodnight to everybody, and I went upstairs and sort of hid so I could wash everybody down there and seeing uh, the good budding alcoholic that I was. I was fascinated by this. And so uh, it was a lot later, and pretty soon she was standing there, and she was talking to some people, and now her cigarette's kind of going over here, and her martini's kind of going over here, and even her hair sort of... 
And, uh, <laughs> and her husband was standing there, and all of a sudden, he just, she, he just swooped her up and took her out the door. And I thought, oh, isn't that romantic? I didn't know she'd pass out. So I heard my father talking to my mother the next day, and he said, you know, dear, Mrs. Holmes was like kind of a nice, lovely lady, but when she drinks too much, she becomes a bit of a foodie. I didn't know what a foodie was. It was about a month later, my father asked me what I want to be when I grow up. I said a foodie. I'm here to tell you I achieved my goal. <laughs> oh, bad joke, I'm cookie. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, add, in, add alcohol instant foodie. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Uh, so when I turned 13, so my girlfriend and I got together and her parents were out of town for the weekend, and I decided to make my, well, she, so we got into, we broke into the liquor cabinet, the first of my illustrious career, and, um, we broke into the liquor cabinet, and I had gone out and I had purloined a cigarette holder. My sponsor pointed out to me in my fifth step that purloined is a fancy word for theft, cookie. Right? So, so I had found the cigarette holder, and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I also had a cigarette that I found shortly before somebody lost it, and, um, you can imagine how much fun I was to sponsor in the beginning, can't you? <laughs> uh, so I decided to make myself up. Oh, you guys been paying attention. You've heard me before, girl. <laughs> yeah, I decided to make myself a martini. Now, I don't know about you, but I have looked back upon this over the years, and I realized something. That I think I was an alcoholic before I took a drink. <laughs> You know, because I started obsessing about this from the moment of that party until the time I could drink that first drink. Isn't that amazing? You know, the big book about college times talks about the fact that we have an obsession of the mind. And I hadn't even introduced alcohol to it yet. So, you know, I uh, I poured that drink and I knew there was some ice in it because there wasn't any ice in her pretty fast. And so I poured myself a glass full of warm gin. And uh <laughs> good starter drink, don't you think? And <laughs> right is the big time. And I uh, I lit my cigarette with my ratty little cigarette holder. And you know, good starter drink, don't you think? And <laughs> right is the big time. And I uh, I lit my cigarette with my ratty little cigarette holder. And you know. Um, Yeah, Clancy, I'm, I don't think, I'm sure most of you know who Clancy is, he's a speaker, and he talks about, uh, he talks about alcoholism and he's got a tape called the disease of perception. And I've thought about that many times over the years, and when he talks about that disease of perception, he talks about that alcoholics see things differently than other people do, and I, I totally believe that today. And, uh, you know, here I am, I'm sitting here, I'm 13 years old, and I got a blue shirt, big surprise, right? And uh, my blue jeans, which at that time we were wearing elephant bells. And <laughs> I'm really old. And now they're back. That's how old I am. And, uh, <laughs> and I had a, uh, 
poured myself a glass full of, uh, of gin, and I was going to take this drink. Now, before that liquor ever hit my lips, I had turned into that beautiful lady in that blue dress. Before I took the first drink. It was amazing to me, just amazing to me when I look back. It took me a long time to put all this together. But I took that first drink, and you know, I love the big book because it says something. It says, an alcoholic drink, something happens. How about you? Did something happen when you drink? <laughs> it talks about the fact that men and women drink essentially because we like the effect produced by alcohol. The effect is so elusive that after a while we cannot differentiate the true from the false. So after alcoholic life seems the only normal one. I pick up that drink, I start to drink it, and something happens. And what happened for me is ever since I was a small child, I had something that went on in my head. I was very uh, gifted athletically, and I did a lot of stuff. And uh, and I wanted to be a winner. I always wanted to be a winner. And here's why. I would sit and I'd watch people and do things, and my head would say this to me. And I don't know if you've ever realized you, your head talks to you. You, know, you may not know that you can talk back to it yet. But anyway, so I'm talking, my head is just talking at me. It says things like this. You know, Cookie, no matter how hard you try, no matter how good you do, you're never going to be just quite good enough. You're never going to be good enough. You've got to work harder and try harder than everybody else because you're not going to be good enough. You know that you're too tall, too short, too fat, too thin. You know that there's something wrong with you. There's just something wrong with you. You're just not quite good enough. You better work harder. You better try harder. You're just not good enough. This was constant with me, and it kept me going. It kept me, it kept me performing in all my sports. It drove me all the time. And uh, I took that drink of alcohol in a matter of about three and a half minutes. It was gone. And I don't know about you. I love the fact that it was gone. And that's the effect alcohol had on me. And I'm going to tell you, I was willing to chase after the gates of insanity and death. That one feeling that first time that I got. You know what I did then, what I do almost every time I drink, I sort of overshot the mark. <laughs> and every time I've had as much alcohol as I want to drink, I drank until I got drunk and passed out and threw up. In any order, whichever you like. And that's what happened that night. And I remember, I remember decorating the bathroom. And uh, and I just, I just thought that this was the most wonderful thing in the entire world. And why hadn't I found it before this? Now I had gone from in a very about three hours of time. From this little girl who wanted to be like her mom and be a lady to someone who's got to figure out how to drink better so they don't throw up. This is not normal. I know it's normal to most of you. <laughs> not normal. And, uh, and so I, uh, you know, I remember that so clearly. And the effect alcohol had on me was that I was free. And I was free. Finally. In a matter of uh, two years, every single one of my sports was gone. I dropped out of high school. I just want to drink, thank you very much. Um, I started out drinking, and when I started drinking, I couldn't stop drinking. It was never any different. I was an alcoholic from the get-go. I just had to plan it better and try harder. I was, like I said, I was brought up in a, in a was very privileged surrounding. And so I didn't find it difficult at all to get all the liquor I ever wanted. I just blackmailed the maid. No hobby. And, um... You know, I was going along, and, and I was doing all this stuff, and and, uh, and, I'm, and my life is totally revolving now around alcohol. And I was, uh, I had gone out to California to visit my uh, my cousin, and when I was out in California, I fell in love, and uh, I'm all of 19 years old, you know, 18 years old, you know, and I fell in love. And I came back, and he came back to my, my, my family, and I was going back out east to meet his family, and he was back in California, he was going to be a marine biologist, and we were going to move to Hawaii and get married. And he was driving back from surfing one day, and the axle broke in his cheek, and he was thrown from the cheek, and he was brain dead. From that moment to this moment today, 
I would turn off anything that had anything to do with the motion. Um, that devastated me to such a point that I didn't even know what to do with it. I had never had any bad news in my life. Um, my life and my family was always fun. It was always funny. It was always do the fun stuff. And all of a sudden, I didn't know what to do. And uh, and so I did what I usually did. I drank a lot. And uh, and I was hanging out with my girlfriend. I was I was thinking about what I was going to do with my life since I was now a high school dropout, and I decided to go to college. <laughs> Why not? And. <laughs> It's not too hard to do, actually. And so I was um, getting ready to go off east to college. I wanted to go to a broadcasting school. At that time, there were no women in broadcasting. And so I thought, this would be a great position for me. You know, you can rise really fast. It'll be really cool. It'll all be fun. And, uh, and so that's what I did. I, I was getting thin. I was hanging out with my girlfriend, Chris. Uh, every time I wanted to get thin, I'd hang out with Chris. And uh, Chris was about six foot two and weighed seven pounds. And... She was a great hanging out, and she, she had a lot of hair, blonde hair. And she was one of those really annoying people that could lay out in 90-degree heat and a whole set of makeup and never perspire. You know, and she'd lay out in this perfect, and I'm a convoy, so we'd go out together, and she'd lay in this perfect lawn chair position with a little pink bikini on, and I'm out in a swimming suit, swimming lap, you know. And I'd come back and look at, look at her, and I'd take a drink of my hair, and I'd come back out. And pretty soon I saw this, this XKE drive by, and I'm a car freight, so I see this car drive by and drive by seven times. <laughs> so I think, well, ha, this is interesting. So I figure he's looking at Chris. You know, I'm, I'm looking like a drowned rat. And, and he walks on, and he walks right up to me. He walks into the water. And I said, I just looked at him, and he said, gee, you look refreshing. I said, you want a beer? <laughs> anyway, um, it was about a month and a half later. I thought I was going to marry him. My mom was real happy about that. I think it was the third date, actually. And, uh, and uh, I always want to remind myself of this because it's some of my really clever and wonderful thinking because I'm ever so bright. And I have to remind myself of how bright I am every once in a while just so I can bask in the glow of my girl playing long. Um, I, I'm standing there and I'm, I'm thinking about all this and, and I'm thinking back when I'm thinking about this and I think, why did I marry him? And uh, I had two reasons. One was he never said anything about my drinking. Guess why? I promised my sponsor I wouldn't take his inventory from the podium. Um, but suffice it to say that he's been in 17 treatment facilities. And uh, the second reason was because he asked. The part about that is I married the second one sobriety for the same reason. <laughs> oh, golly. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah. And we started off and we were just, we were quite the couple. We were both tall, dark, and handsome. And, uh, and he, we had, I had an ability and he had an ability to make a great deal of money at that time. And I started my own company when I was 20 years old through the grace of God and the fellowship of this program and a lot of very good luck and a lot of very loving friends. I retired from that business with 35 years um, just last year. So I started my business then, and uh, I was in a field where there were no women, of course. And since, you know, you know how we are about other women. I don't know about you women out there, but I'm sure that way about other women. You know, I mean, I don't really want to be around because most women don't drink like I drink, and they always tend to know this. Like, if you think like, are you having another? 
have majority hat too? Yeah, I'm warming up. So, I don't know about you, but I eliminated friends who didn't drink like I drank. They just sort of got pushed to the side. And so I, um, we, uh, we started living a very fancy lifestyle. And we had fancy cars and fancy things and everything was fancy. And I hung around with some pretty important people. And I traveled all over the world and I did a lot of fancy stuff. Um, my husband used to travel on the road Mondays through Fridays. And we had a nice little five-bedroom house for the two of us. And, uh, and he was gone. My girlfriend lived upstairs. <laughs> you never knew she lived up there. <laughs> it was great. I love hanging around with her because she was slowly working her way through an entire football team. It's kind of like a, you know, a spectator sport. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, she'd be off with all these football players all the time. And I'd go out drinking with her because I just want somebody to drink with and go out and have fun. And, and I have to give you a picture of what I looked like at that time. For some of you that are young enough, you may not remember any of this, or, some, or you may have seen it on old movies. Um, but yeah, I had, I had two sets of wigs. My hair was about off of here. And I wore two sets of eyelashes up here, and one set down here. And, and I, had, uh, I had white gogo boots, platform gogo boots, that came up over my knee and folded over. They were vinyl. They were really sexy. And then I wore a little, I wore a little hot pants. Do you remember hot pants? I had my little hot pants, you know. And, and that was when we wore that real light lipstick, you know. And then we had the white and the brown and the white. And we drew the little twiggies under our eyes. I was just gorgeous. And so I would hang out with her. And, and she would be working her way through the team. And, and I'd be watching this. And it was very fun. And I'd hang out with all of them. And, and I kind of made a, I kind of made I like to sort of look off a little. I know you find that hard to believe. But I would uh, make jokes with these guys and have fun and all kinds of stuff. And, and I was a little girl that really lived in the suburbs and had been very sheltered all of her life. I had parents who loved me. I didn't know there were bad things that went on in this world. I really didn't. Uh, that was someplace over there. It didn't make any sense. I mean, it was a different world then. And so I, uh, I was kind of laughing with these guys. And, and one of the guys was kind of, rather slow and uh and i tell jokes and he come up and go hey i got that cookie and i would say things like good in this millennium and you know and i was not nice and so this is not any to give any kind of an idea or reason for anything it's just the fact that set this thing up and so i came home one night and unbeknownst to me he followed me home and uh um, i was home for about 15 minutes and he came to my door and i said what are you doing here and he got himself in and he ended up raping me now, this happened in my own home, and uh, I had no system in place to deal with what happened to me, none. Um, it was, uh, I, was uh, I was sober for a number of years before I could even talk about this, and it was hard. I blamed myself. Um, I thought if I had just not said that stuff, if I just had not worn that outfit, if I just had not. And I didn't know. I didn't know anything. And I carried that shame with me, and it was to light the rest of my behavior for the rest of my drinking. Um, there's something I want to say to you if that's been your experience, and I do know that for the women in Alcoholics Anonymous, only over 85% of us come in here with some sort of form of abuse. And, uh, and I want to hear you if you're out there and, and this has happened to you. I want you to hear me. It is not your fault. It is not your fault. No matter what happens, 
no matter what you wore, no matter what you said, no matter anything, nobody, absolutely nobody has the right to hurt you, to downgrade you, to rape you, to hit you, or anything else. Nobody has that right. I carried that shame for so long and so hard. Um, it was shortly after the next day I woke up and, and I couldn't, I didn't know what to do with this. I had no idea what to do with this. Um, you know, I was a happy-go-lucky kid that I wasn't even an adult yet, really. And, uh, and I tried to commit suicide because you figure, I figured out the damaged goods. This doesn't happen to good girls. This doesn't happen to girls that live like I live and grow up where I grow up. There's something very wrong with me and now I know it. And, uh, I remember I took all the pills I had at the time. They weren't good enough pills. Uh, obviously I'm not very good at suicide. So, um, I woke up and, uh, and I was mad. I was real mad. I was mad at the fact that, uh, that I had not killed myself. Um, I thought I was a loser because I couldn't even kill myself right. And the thing about that is when I woke up, my husband was there and I didn't know what to say to him. And, you know, we're amazing people for alcoholics. And if you're an alcoholic, like I'm an alcoholic, you might relate to the fact that we know how to rally. And, you know, one of the things I did was I just sat there and I, I didn't know what to do. But from that moment on until the moment until I was close to two years sober, I could not look in the mirror and look myself in the eye. I'd look at whatever piece of me I was putting makeup on. I'd look all over like that, but I could never, never look at myself again. And I didn't know that I had let somebody steal my soul. I didn't know that. Um, so what I decided to do was, I'm going to, I've got to get this together, Cookie. This is ridiculous. You've got to get this together. You've always been good at everything. You can win at everything. Get yourself together. And I rallied. You know, I rallied and I said, this is it. I'm not going to think about that anymore. I have always lived from that day until I did my fifth step with the Scarlett O'Hara theory of living, which is, I won't think about that today. I'll think about that tomorrow when I'm in Terra. So, you know, I just threw things back here, and I didn't think about them anymore, and I was going to rally, and I was going to be that person, you know, that just gets out there, and I'm going to do the right thing, and I'm going to be this right person. And so I, uh, I, uh, I stopped drinking, and I stopped smoking, and I stopped doing everything, and I went to work, and I did my job, and I came home every night, and I did needle point. You said TV. I'm not drinking, I'm not going to drink, I'm not drinking that, I'm not drinking that. I'm not drinking that, I'm not drinking that, I am not going to drink tonight. I did this for 30 days. You think I don't have willpower? Thanks. You know, and that's the interesting thing about alcoholism. You know, I'm sitting there and I'm doing that, but what am I doing? I'm thinking about drinking when I'm not drinking. You know, and that's what they talk about, the mental obsession. I have never had a problem with the second step in the program of alcoholism. Never. Because I can sit there and my insanity says this time it's going to be different. It took me 30 days, and in 30 days you know what happened? I'm sitting there one night, after those 30 days have passed, and everything's going cool. And I said to myself, well, you know, I've been talking for 30 years. This time it'll be different. It was. You know anything about alcoholism, it gets very different. It gets worse. You should know. So don't go back out there again. Anyway, <laughs> so I, um, 
I, you know, it did get worse. Yeah, I started drinking. I never had vengeance for drinking. Now I didn't really care. I didn't care much about anything. I didn't care about you, and I didn't care about what happened to me. I didn't care about anything. I figured nothing, absolutely nothing, was going to stand in my way of doing whatever I feel like doing from now on. I've always tried to follow the rules. I always tried to be a good girl. I always tried to, you know, grow up just like my mom would be a lady. What good has it done me? You know, and I gave up on myself. And that's the problem with women when we go through these things. We throw ourselves away. And if you throw yourself away, I want to hear you something. I want you to hear something that I'm saying. We have 12 steps here. And two of them are four and five. And in four and five, you get free. You get free. You know? The steps are like an inside shower. You're the person that's going to get free. So I, uh, uh, we went around, I got even crazier after that, and, and my husband came home one day and said, you know, I bought a boat, and I thought, oh, good, for the lake. And he said, no, um, we're going to move to Acapulco and live on a yacht. And I thought, did I miss, like, six months of this marriage or something? And, uh, <laughs> which wouldn't have been surprising at that point. But, yeah, I mean, I mean, he just thought these things up, and he would say, you know, I sold the house. Really? Where am I going to live now? You know? <laughs> but I didn't care, because, you know what, at this point, I didn't care anything about anything. I didn't care about what I did or who I did it with, and I didn't care when I did it. And what I would do is I'd go out and I'd go drinking with my friends, and I'd take your boyfriend, your husband, or any other person that would say hello to me. And, uh, and I'd just sort of walk away with you, you know, and I just wanted somebody to drink with me. I wanted someone to drink with me and to play with me and to pay attention to me because my husband never did. He was too busy working. <laughs> I just love the way we ration things. <laughs> anyway, so there I am, and I'm doing all this crazy stuff, and I'm going everywhere, and I'm doing all whatever. I'm living. We had, at that time, we had a, a house in Florida and a house in Minnesota, and we had a jet to drive, that go back and forth with me, and a couple of yachts, and I drove a Ferrari and a Porsche. I had everything in the world I've ever wanted. Everything. Everything. And this is a bad place to be if you're an alcoholic, because, you know, it's always that thing that says, you know, well, if I only have that, it will all be okay. I had that, and that, and that, and that, and that, and that. So, you know, I'm really grateful for that today because I know something is coming back to give me a second chance of learning it, which is uh, if my life depends on the, the car I drive or the watch I wear or anything else, I'm in big trouble. If my life depends upon anything you think of me, I'm in big trouble. You know? Um, the thing that brought me here was uh, I had uh, I had uh, been out working one night, and I got uh, coming back from a job, and... Uh, drunk ran through a red light and hit me. And I spent the next two years in hospital. Um, pretty much destroyed my back and a lot of other parts of me. And uh, and so I uh, I just became a recluse. Um, I they gave me lots of drugs. I needed lots of drugs to get along with things. You know, and I go to my doctor and say I can't sleep until I give me sleeping pills. And I say I'm in so much pain I can't stand. They give me painkillers. And I said I'm really depressed until I give me antidepressants. And, and, and then I said, you know what, my muscles are in constant stress, they give me muscles relaxers. And, you know, it's kind of interesting because I was doing all that and drinking a quart of booze a day. I didn't move a lot. You know, and I became that recluse person you hear about, the one that's all by themselves, all alone. And that's who I was. Um, I'm sitting in this wonderful morass of self-pity, and, uh, and I don't know what to do with myself anymore. I don't know what day it is, and I don't care what day it is, and it's very, very large. Um, I'm going to track a shade of yellow. And uh, I'm dying of the disease of alcoholism, and I don't know I'm an alcoholic. I don't know anything about the mental obsession. I don't know anything about the physical compulsion of alcoholism. I don't know I have an allergy to alcohol. All I know is that that stuff makes me feel okay. Please don't ever take it away. And I'm now in a position where my body is shutting down from alcohol, and I'm crawling across my $40,000 Persian rug <laughs> to go into the kitchen to shimmy myself up on a cabinet. 
so that I can drink and throw up and drink and throw up and drink and throw up and drink and throw up. I maybe the fifth or the sixth or seventh one will stay down. I am now a chronic alcoholic, and I'm living in a skid roll. It was a very fancy skid roll, but it was skid roll for me. And there was nothing left of cookie. I was gone. Um, all I wanted to do was to just die. That's all I wanted to do. I had been beaten into a state of reasonableness by alcoholism, and I didn't know I was an alcoholic. Uh, I was uh, <clears throat> loving this life. My husband was doing really crazy stuff, and it was just like a it was like a circus, you know. And, and I've heard many people say that if you marry an alcoholic and you, and you live in an alcoholic marriage, you got to dance to death. And that's what we had: was a dance to death. And um, <clears throat> I decided I was finally going to kill myself this time I was going to make it for sure. And uh, I had lots of good pills now. And I remember looking up and it was a gray day. And it was uh, right about now. And I was looking out the window and I was looking up and I, was, I said one thing. And I said, God, if there is a God. And I'm going to tell you, it's been a long time since this cookie had talked to any kind of God. Because I didn't figure he wanted to have much to do with me with all the things that happened to me. I had too much shame. And... Uh, I said, God, if there is a God, please, this time let me die. I don't want to do this anymore. Don't make me do this anymore, please. Now, I don't know what your third step sounded like, but I think that qualified me. It was interesting because I was going to take all those drugs and the doorbell rang. You know what I'm lying? It is when somebody interrupts your person with a suicide plan. I mean, really. How rude. So I, uh, <laughs> I can't believe I opened the door to this day, but, you know, like, what I did. And, uh, you know, with my father, and we do not have a drop-in family. We're a very formal group. And um, he's just, my father's going to come over. He called okay, he's going to come over. So here's my dad standing there. I said, Dad, what are you doing here? And he said, honey, I've come to take you home. I can't watch this anymore. And I said, okay. And I left. And I left everything. The cars and the yachts and the planes and everything. So I just left. Well, I took my makeup. Hard to cover up that much yellow. <laughs> so at this point, I had no clothes because I'd been really in this really lovely kind of horrible chenille bathrobe that was all had like had cigarette burns all down the front and dribbly stuff. And, and the, it was all funny in the front because I kept crawling everywhere in it. And... Um, I was really attractive, and, and I had decided a couple times to perm my own hair and color it so it's straight out like this and frizzed to death and black, you know, <laughs> and uh, I was not looking pretty, okay, and I'm yellow, and <laughs> I just remember walking out the door, and it was quite a few years later, I remember what I said to myself, and, and uh, what I said to myself is one of us is going to survive this, and it's going to be me. I don't know when you made your decision, or if you've made your decision yet. But I knew something right there, and I knew it was never going to be the same, ever. That everything was going to change. My uh, parents, I came home to my parents, and my mother had to lend me a dress that didn't have anything to wear, so she found this lovely moo-moo. <laughs> I still think of this. <laughs> and so we had to go see an old friend of theirs, and so I, I put on this new move, and I tried to cover up as much of the yellow as I could. It's kind of hard to kind of get your eyeballs looking right, though. And so, you know, and I, I wasn't really good at putting my makeup on, so I didn't really put too much on, but I kind of, 
we got it together. And we go out to this place, and it was a place where I'd run up in and their house and their home and these people, and, and I hadn't seen any of these people in years. I'd become, like I said, a recluse. And, and so we came there, and they said, well, make yourself a drink cookie. My parents have never understood alcoholism. I don't think they ever really will understand alcoholism. It is not their job to understand alcoholism. It's my job to understand them. And so, um, you know, I uh, I made myself a drink. You know, one of those we make ourselves, you know, those drinks. You know, glass. Rum. Film <laughs> glass. Put in a ice cube. Ah, perfect. So I had no doubt the point that I would throw up all the time before someone would say, I'm kind of wondering whether this one was going to stay down or not. And, uh, and it did, thank God. And I made myself another one. Now I didn't feel like it. So I, uh, my parents said we were going to go home, and so I thanked the hostess for inviting me on short notice. It was very lovely to see her again, and I went out, and I walked down the way to my parents' car, and I walked around my parents' car, and they were still talking to Mrs. Jones, and so uh, I threw up in the bushes. Now, I had been raped. I had had a lot of stuff happen to me. This certainly wasn't the highlight of my drinking career, but it's the thing that got my attention, and I hope you always remember the one that gets your attention. There's a real strength in being us, and me sharing with you and you sharing with me is when we remember who we are so we never forget who we are. And uh, as we drove away, I said to myself, so this is the lady who's the cum cookie. You throw up in the bushes. Hmm. And at that moment, I knew. I knew my problem was alcohol. I think the hand of that God that I had anything to do with for an awful lot of years came and took me away and said, it's okay, honey. And he started making things clear to me. And I knew from that moment on that I could never drink again. Now, that was not something I thought up on my own and trust me. And so I did that, and I uh, I remember I, uh, um, my parents had a friend that owned the treatment facility, so they sent me to the treatment facility. You know, it's nice having money. And uh, and I went there, and the lady interviewed me. And the lady, one of the people that was the secretary there today, I still see in my Friday meeting, and she always looks at me and goes, There's such a miracle. <laughs> it's wonderful to have friends for, you know, 22 years that have seen you come all the way. That's one of the gifts of sobriety. But, yeah, I uh, I went to treatment, and I just, you know, I, they did this interview, and I said, what do you feel like? And I said, I feel like I'm inside of a stainless steel drum that's got a cone at the bottom, and I'm going around and around a rope, and I'm going to slide down, and I'm going to be dead. And he said, I have a chair for you. <laughs> but for me, you see, once I start thinking I can't stop drinking, I never could, and I didn't even want to. Didn't even want to. Never. I never went out and said, let's have two drinks. I was not of that variety. I was an alcoholic from the get-go, instant drunk. Um, I was, I got, let me tell you this one. My mother, who was just an adorable woman, and she's 83 years old now, and she's just a kick in the pants. And uh, I remember I was about 14 years sober, and every once in a while she'd say something like, that's just because we made you skate too much when you were young, honey. Maybe you shouldn't have had to have those horses to ride. You always had to be doing something. Maybe we shouldn't have done that for you. You sure it wasn't because we went up north every year? And I said, Mom, okay, let me do this one more time. Alcoholism is an equal opportunity disease. It doesn't care if you're rich or poor. Um, I was the lucky genetic winner of alcoholism in our family. And today, I believe I am the lucky genetic winner in our family because I have a way of living that outshines anything else I've ever had. 
But I said to her, you know, it's a genetic disease, Mother. It comes from the family. Once you have this, you can never get better. It's not something you just choose. It's sort of like having diabetes, you know. You didn't just go one day, oh, I think I'll eat a lot of sugar and have diabetes. You know, it's not that way. And so I kept explaining this to her. I got it many, many times. And so there's another day where she looked at me and she goes, okay, honey. So I came back and I was sitting talking to her the next day. And she said, uh, I think I understand now. And I said, very much. It comes from your father's side of the family. (laughs) She was happy. (laughs) And she's just a wonderful woman. I'm living with her again now. And and we have so much fun together. Anyway, so I... uh, I went to this dream episode. I remember I was supposed to walk into a door. They said there was an AA meeting in there. And I stood there for a moment. It looked like almost like the door was backlit. And I just looked at it. And all of a sudden, the thing that in my head said, well, you, I, I, thought to my, oh, I thought to myself, if you walk through that door, you're admitting you're an alcoholic. And all of a sudden, the thing in my head said, well, get your ass in there. You are. <laughs> I don't know how your God, your God talks to you, but mine's funny. <laughs> and that's, that's a voice that stays with me today that I listen for and I follow. And, and I have tried to nurture it over the years. But it has given me a direction all the time. Most of it pretty lippy. Anyway, I, um, but if I probably figure if I can hear it that way. Anyway, so I go through this and I go through treatment. I don't remember anything of treatment. I had really... Um, alcohol a little too long and pretty much fried my brain. So I was coming out of street night, like I said, I remember we had a woman constant. She was very nice and eating everywhere. And pretty soon, you know, I decided I'd get gorgeous because that's the next thing to do, of course. And, uh, and so I decided to get gorgeous, so I lost 100 pounds. And uh, dieting has always been a um, hobby for me. Obviously, it's not a vocation. And so I... Uh, I lost this hundred pounds and I had my face done and, and I look gorgeous now. Gorgeous. And uh and not all men are around me. Ha 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 ha. And uh, and, and now I say things to them like, Well, that's so nice. Oh, you don't want to go out with me, how kind. Uh, you didn't seem to want to go out with me a year ago. <laughs> if you didn't want to go out with me when I was fat, why would I want to go out with you when I'm thin? And you know <laughs> So and I'm going through all this stuff, you know, and they had the they had all, all the the um the Steps and the traditions on the wall, you know, you have that mini sheet, you have that here, right? You know, steps and traditions on the wall. And so I can read. I'm not sipping. So I'm reading them off the wall, and pretty soon I start writing them down, and I'm thinking, well, okay, Carlos, you have to know that one already. Uh, <laughs> you know, can't stop, yeah, can't do it. Can't say, I'm lying, so I don't understand. God, yeah, uh-huh, I believe there's a God. Why wouldn't I believe there's a God? I mean, I'm a woman. I've been under some of some most of my life. So, I mean, I was just nuts. And in preaching and start sponsoring people, God knows what message I was carrying. But I was busy. And I'm going to meetings and I'm everywhere. I'm about three and a half years sober and I'm starting to unravel. And, uh, and Roger's kind father got up one day. There was a speaker meeting. And he got up, gone. And he said, uh, he said, I feel like telling my story name. He said, I'm going to talk about the history of AA. And everybody kind of went, ooh, you know, we're all so eager. And, uh, <laughs> and he got up and he started just talking about Sister Ignatian, Father Dowling, and having me decide really, and I'm thinking, who the heck are all these people? You know, and I had prided myself on knowing everybody in the A at that point. <laughs> just a little legal problem. And, uh, and so, so, you know, um, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, Cookie, you call yourself a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and you don't even know what you're a member of. You're a hypocrite. It's a bad thing to be in cookie land. 
hypocrites of being looking around. So, you know, I uh, I went home and, and I thought, you know, I'm three and a half years sober, I'm gorgeous, I've been looking to fix myself, so I was just not working, I might as well tell myself. I'm three and a half years sober, sitting in the middle of four meetings a week, dying of the illness of alcoholism. Dying of the illness of alcoholism because nobody's telling me what alcoholism really is. Nobody's giving me a solution that works. We're just all talking about topics, you know? You know, once in a while somebody mentioned the third step, and, but there was no, like, go through the book. There was nothing going on that I saw at that time. And um, I'm sitting thinking about this, something I don't want to shoot myself. I don't want to leave that kind of a mess for anybody. Um, I can't take pills because I blow my sobriety. <laughs> and, uh, and I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll start the car, and I can put on all my makeup. You see my order of importance here. And uh, and then I can just sit in the car and I'll go to sleep and I'll die. And then I thought about that and I thought, well, if my car runs that long, I'm going to end up killing my dog. And I just couldn't couldn't stand it if I killed my dog. So and during the middle of this wonderful meeting, I had a little rule for myself, and that was to, whenever we got really, really crazy, which I did frequently, I had a lot of anxiety attacks when I was first over, and, uh, and you read something, make you calm down. Well, you see, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very good on looks, and I have a copy of the big book that's on the table, so you'll know I'm a member of AA. And then I have the grapevine. Y'all know what the grapevine is, our medium print. And I have those stand out over here, so you'll know I'm a member of AA. <laughs> I didn't read them. And, uh, and I, you know, I've got everything, you've got all the accoutrement of looking like a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'm not a member. I don't even know what AA really is. And so all of a sudden something random. I'm reading this book, and I'm, reading, and I'm thinking, I've got to do something, I've got to do something. So I pick up an issue of this grapevine. Who knew? <laughs> and after reading my self-help book. And, uh, and I picked up this issue of the grapevine, and I just wanted to pick it up, and I opened it like this, and it said, Suicide in Sobriety. I went, not funny. <laughs> and then there was a reprint of a reprint of an article that says, There will come a time in your sobriety when there's a piece of your ego dying off because it is no longer necessary, and it's trying to take you with it. Hmm. It took me a number of years to be able to label that after a lot of work. But when I finally did label it, I called it Cookie the Scar. You see, I'd been a star in riding and skating and all these things I'd ever done in my life because I was a super achiever. And so when I came into A and I sobered up, I was going to be an A star. You, you tried that? Just do everything everybody tells you to do and it'll be all fine. And see, my whole value, my whole sense of worth came from you telling me I'm okay. Everything came from that. So I went and did everything everybody said in AA so that you would say I was okay so that I would feel whole. And I, came, I I ran myself ragged trying to make all you happy, you know. Like I said, I was everywhere. I did everything. I volunteered for every position. I did everything you're supposed to do, I thought. And so and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about that, and all of a sudden this thought goes through my head. You better read the big book like your life depends on it, because it does. That's weird. So I look down at this book I've never opened, and I pick it up, and it says, we have alcoholics anonymous for more than 100 men and women who have recovered, not recovering, recovered, from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body to other alcoholics. Precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. Well, that's what it's for. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm slow. And so, so I picked, and I just started reading it, and when it said pray, I, I prayed, and when it said write, I wrote, and that's what I did, man. I followed the directions exactly. 
And, you know, I, I read where it said, you know, nothing is so much in tears immunity as intense to work with other alcoholics. It works when all other measures fail. And so I'm not, I'm out there and I'm starting to collect fine fees, you know, and I'm getting them and I'm saying, hi, oh, you really want to read the book, 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 don't you? I think you really love the big book. It's really going to be fun. I have one right here about that. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, uh, that's what I did. And I was, I was on fire. You know, and I wrote out the score steps like it says in the big book and I wrote out all those columns and I couldn't think of anybody I regretted. Honestly, I couldn't. At that time, Charlie and Joe came through. And I went up to Joe and I said, Joe, I think I'm not going to make it in this program. He said, how long have you been sober? And I said, three and a half years. He kind of went, <laughs> okay. And, uh, and I said, but I can't think of anybody I resent. And he said, put yourself on the head of the resentment list. And that's what I did. And that's where I started. And I put myself on the head of the resentment list because I just hated me. I didn't just not like me. I hated me. And, uh, and how that, that worked out for me is I never had a resentment. Because I was so self-centered, I didn't even bother resenting you. I could just hate myself and have all the fun. And if I hadn't had that key, and so many keys as a goal on, people give us keys, you know, keys to our sobriety, new tools, whatever we need. And if I hadn't had that key, I don't know where I'd be today. But that's where I started. And I did that, and I read this to my sponsor. She had no idea what I was doing. She said, that's nice, dear. I'm glad you've been busy. And I adored her, but she wasn't a big book person. And so now I'm collecting all these girls, and we're all going everywhere together, and I take the first two rows of every single meeting, and we all go sit in line, and it's me and all the girls, and, and, we, and we, we're big book people, we're doing big book, we're doing it together, it's, it's, we're, like a, we're like a cadre of rabid big book women, <laughs> and so, uh, so, you know, it was really funny, because uh, I shared with the girls that I had waited a year and a half before I had any relationships in AA, and well, that's because the uh, old timers said two years, and the newer people said one year, so I split the difference. And so, and so I'm doing all this, and, and so I'm suggesting it's my girls. Well, now I happen to sponsor all the most beautiful girls in AA, so pretty soon I'm getting men who hate me because they can't touch my AA women, so they've got a year and a half. So I didn't impose this rule; it just happened. Because I tell people, you know, that's what I did. You just used to do what you want to do. And so now I'm getting people coming up to me, telling me how much they resent me. And I always figure that's good because they got to pray for me. And, uh, and so, so then I found these places I'm going to preach in my head and say, to the jungle drums. They said, yeah, Cookie's got all this fun. See, who the hell does she think she is? You know, Cookie and her crumbs. <laughs> so, of course, my girls being my girls, they all came in going, I'm Cookie Crumbs. <laughs> So anyway, we, we just, it was a wonderful and exciting time. It's an exciting time. You know, we're doing our work together. We're making amends. We're doing all that stuff, you know. And, and I, when I wrote out my fifth step and, and when I looked at my character defects the first time, I, I just didn't know much about it. But this time it's starting to eat on me. Now I'm seven, eight years old and it's starting to eat me up a little bit, you know. I'm doing all this fun stuff and I'm as long as far as I could go alone, truthfully. Um, I'm having these girls go through the book with me. They're getting, they're going along. They're doing well. And all of a sudden I start kind of unraveling again. And I unravel enough that I do some things that are very embarrassing for me in sobriety. And, uh, and, you know, acting out behavior. And, and I ended up, uh, with, uh, fooling around with the guy I shouldn't have been fooling around with. And, uh, it was very embarrassing. It was very embarrassing for me. Um, I think there's a lot of surrenders in sobriety. I think we go through a lot of them. And, uh, and I think our first big surrender is coming in and then we start to, we start to peel away all like they talk about the layers of the onion. We start to peel things away. We start to become the people we're supposed to become, the people that God wants us to be. And in that process, it's amazingly painful at times. And so what I realized at that time was I just couldn't go on doing this by myself alone. And I was asking God, and, and I'd kind of gotten away from really asking God much. You know how that works. 
And, you know, you get busy. <laughs> I'm too busy to pray. That'll work well, Cookie. And uh, anyway, so I asked God, I said, I don't know what to do anymore. And uh, the ego had reasserted itself, as it will do. And uh, I'm sitting in my meeting one day, and in comes this lady. I've never seen her before. And she sits down, and she ends up being in my group, and she sits down, and she has her big book with her. I thought, Shazam. I had been bringing my big book in the meetings, and they said things to me like, are you going to read out of that GD book again? You know, so I'm always been a people pleaser, so I just started memorizing paragraphs. <laughs> I'm naughty. And, uh, and so I would just take paragraphs when I was in meetings. And she came in, and she knew all about the book. She had more, had more years of sobriety almost than I did. And that woman saved my life. And I'm always hoping that for any of you that don't know that there's a big book and there is a way out and that you don't ever have to drink again, that there is someone that can help you and that you can get through this and you're never alone. You're never alone no matter what. You can choose to be alone, but you're never alone. You can choose to use again, but you're never going to have to if you don't want to. Because there's enough of us that care enough that will carry the message and help you. I was... uh it's almost like a rebirth, you know, in a sense, and, and we went and we did a lot of stuff together. I went through the whole book again with her, and, and I had a whole new reawakening and, and a whole new purpose for my life. And I was just, it was fabulous. I was doing well. Everything was going well. My business was well. And I had been asking God, you know, I don't know what to do. Uh, I do have a lot of things wrong with my body. I was getting older. I knew I couldn't keep working the way I was working. And so uh, I asked God to give me some kind of a sign for what I needed to do, and, and uh and you know how that works. Um, I had, uh, I was tired of being alone. And uh, so I, a friend of the family had uh, been in AA for a long time. And he, uh, he ended up being a speaker at one of the meetings I was at. He gave the worst AA talk I've ever heard in my life. And all <laughs> my friends are looking at him going, Huh? <laughs> and anyway, someone just talked to me afterwards, and I said, well, gee, where'd you, where did you learn that the 12 steps were developed by a minister in Florida? And <laughs> I had a little different opinion than that. Anyway, uh, we had shown horses together for uh, 40 years ago, and I had known his family. He'd known my family. He was an older gentleman. Um, I knew that I needed some financial security, and I was real tired of being alone, and I made a lot of compromises and ended up marrying him. And that was very interesting. I showed before I married him about rollerblading one day. I turned 50, you know, I was about rollerblading one day, and um, I didn't see this car coming, and she hit me. And I spent a, I broke both shoulders and three ribs, and that was the start of a wonderful journey that I've had in the last couple of years. My father got cancer. I adore my father. He's always been my hero. And my father got cancer, and he, uh, he got to die one day at a time while I watched him for a year. And this is, I'm the little girl that would run away from everything. I'm the one that, if there was an emotion anywhere, I'd be somewhere else. If there was any kind of responsibility that really had to do with anything, because it was emotional, I'd be somewhere else. You know, I'm the one suiting up and showing up. And I'm doing that because you taught me how to be a person who suits up and shows up. And I'm adoring my father, and I'm watching him shrivel away. And I looked at him one day, and I said, Daddy, I always wanted to ask you this. I said, why did you come on that day when, when so long ago, um, and he said that was the day that, you know, he came to the door on my suicide attempt. And he said, I don't know, honey, I was reading the Bible that morning. My father's a very spiritual man. He wasn't very religious. Um, but he was spiritual. And he said, I was reading the Bible that morning, and 
know if I didn't go get you right then, I'd never see you again. You know, so I, my, I owe my father my life twice. Um, two and a half years ago, um, I was going out to New York to do a talk, and, and I was sitting on the plane, I was going like this, and I felt a little lump right here. And um, I got in to see one of my sponsors, Ava, and, and she looked at it, and she went crazy. <laughs> you gotta call your doctor. You gotta call your doctor. And so, uh, and she made me call right then. She's a little over demanding at times. Anyway, I wouldn't have seen it because I've been to so many doctors with my back over the years. I didn't want to see anybody. But I called my doctor and, uh, and she, uh, she saved my life. Um, I went to the doctor and I found out that I had stage four squamous cell carcinoma of the left console. Um, I went to Mayo on a Friday. They said I had to come in Monday for my surgery. I had a 50-50 chance of surviving the surgery. And if I survived the surgery, I had a 50% chance of ever being able to speak again, turn my head, or lift my left arm. So I went home to get my, my things in order. Uh, I went down there with my, uh, with an Al, with an Al-Anon sponsor, or an Al-Anon sister sponsor, whatever. Um, and we both had the same sponsor, and she took me down to Mayo because she was familiar with Mayo, and she also was somebody that walked me through, walked me through this time of my life. I want to know what you're a part of. I want you to know what you're a part of. And maybe you don't know some of this because maybe these things haven't happened to you, but things have happened to me that have been incredibly bad for the last five years. And uh, they've been embarrassing and heartbreaking and everything you can think of. Um, During this time that I was having this, my husband decided he wanted to get a divorce. It was very public and it was very embarrassing for me. And uh, it was a very large betrayal. And it was very hard. Um, and I'm asking God, what? What am I supposed to be doing here, God? What am I not doing? What am I supposed to be doing? And I don't believe at any one of these times that it was God's idea that I should have to go through things bad. I think life happens. I think life happens and I think God gives us the ability to handle those things with the friends that we have. So I, uh, I went and, uh, I went for the surgery. I came back, uh, Friday. Told my mom where everything was, and uh, and I looked at uh, my sister and Francine, and I said, uh, I want to go to the meeting. Because alcoholics go to meetings, and I'm an alcoholic. And I called one of my sponsors, and I said, if you can be there and you can show up and not cry and not fall apart in front of me, I want you to be there. If you can't, please don't come, because I can't handle your emotions and mine too. And so I'm walking this way alone, and uh, and but I'm not alone, am I? And I sat there in the meeting with my friends, because other people were there, and, you know, uh, my Al-Anon sponsor and her husband, Bob B. and and Linda, and these are people that I love and I've known my whole sobriety, and uh, and I don't remember anything anybody said, but I remembered one thing, that they loved me. You know, so I went into that surgery the next uh, Monday morning, and uh, now, that night before I said a prayer, and and I don't know what, what you know about yourself, but sometimes we learn things about ourselves. And it's very, very difficult. And uh, I had, uh, we'd gone out for dinner and they had wine. Isn't that just about typical? You know, I go out to dinner with two Elanons. They have wine. It's the last night of mine on earth, maybe. And they're drinking. What? What? I think it was a ha-ha. Anyway, so, uh, so, yeah, they're drinking and getting silly. They're not drunk, you know, and I'm looking at them and going, you're getting silly. Am I going to have to drive back to the hotel? And it was, it was very funny. And then they wanted, you know, if I wanted to watch TV with them, how they're both giggling, and I said, no, I think I'll pass. <laughs> and, uh, and I went and I sat down and I decided to say my prayers. And, 
you know, it was funny because I didn't know I was going to pray this, and I learned a lot about you and about me. And uh, I said, God, you know, I came in here uh, at that time, it was 18 years ago, and I said, I came in on a suicide attempt. So this life has really been your life, and this has been your gift, and hopefully I've been able to give some of it back. Hopefully I've been able to love some of your kids and share your message and tell other people they don't ever have to live the way they used to live, and there is a way out. And if you want me to come home, I've lived my whole life in sobriety and pain, and if you want me to come home, I'm ready to come home. And if you don't, I'll stay and love some more of your kids. And carry the message. And I went in for surgery the next morning. Um, and I came out seven and a half hours later. And everybody was in the room. There was a whole lot of people in the room. And they were all waiting to see if I could talk. And the doctor didn't know if I could talk either. They didn't know how much was left. And they took out most of my neck and jugular vein and the whole back of my throat. And um, like that. So, uh, I looked up, and when I looked up, you know, I called myself Cookie the Star. That was the piece of ego that had, had, uh, had died off at that one time. And I opened my eyes, and I looked across the way, and there was a building with a gigantic star on it. And I knew, and I just knew, you know. And I said, star, and they went, she can talk, and they all left. <laughs> but I want to tell you what you're a part of. Um, I went home after that. I had to go through horrendous um, radiation. It was very bad. And, uh, and I had, I had people that loved me so much that they put together an entire color-coded program of who was going to come and pick me up, who was going to be with me 24 hours a day for the next three months. Because they knew how bad it was going to be. I had somebody all the time with me. And it was really strange because I was so very sick when I first got done and, and I couldn't eat anything and I couldn't swallow anything and it was really scary and I thought, thought I was going to choke to death all the time and it was, it was not fun. Anyway, so I was sleeping, and they gave me lots of things, so I sleep, and, and every once in a while I opened my eyes, and there'd be this cheerful face of someone who's like, Hi, my name's Chelsea, and I'm your great, great, great grandson of me, and it's an honor to be here with you. Hi, Chelsea. That's what you did. You love me back to health, and that's what we're a part of. We're a fellowship. We're people that care about each other. And the funny thing is that the people that showed up to care about me, if I would have told you who I thought the top 20 people would be, none of those were the ones that turned up. There were people I heard that heard me speak one time or that, that I was a good workshop for him or whatever. And one guy showed up and, and he stayed with me every Tuesday night because he'd had cancer before and I'd lined him up with somebody to take him through the big book. You know, and that's what happens. That's what happens here. You know, we love each other. You know, and I'm the luckiest woman in the world. I am the luckiest woman in the world. Because I get to come here and love you for a while, you know, and you're, you're, you're very kind to listen to me, and you're very kind to be part of my world, you know, and I'm honored to be here at your 60th anniversary. I am honored. I can't begin to tell you. So I will close with um, my favorite prayer. Um, it's one from Merton, and it says, I have no idea where I am going. I do not know the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will all end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following the will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you, and I hope that I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire, and I know if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the valley of the shadow of death I will not fear 
for you are ever with me and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. God bless you and thank you for my life.